millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before we start today's show... I should tell you about our new sponsor. It's going to be our sponsor for the next ooh, couple of months here on Mid-Atlantic. It's Flick. And what Flick do is they have an app. And it allows you, the listener, to chat with other listeners of this podcast. Quite simply, to go and download this app to your smartphone. Go onto the show notes of this episode. You'll see a link. Click on that link. It will then download an app to your phone, which then connects you to the world of Mid-Atlantic listeners. Now, not only can you chat, create your own topics, and respond to uh, people's comments about US and UK politics, we can also listen to the show. So it basically acts as an, an app for the podcast. So go on to the show notes, download the Flick app and enjoy. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm a shell-shocked and bewildered Royal Brown in the East Bay of uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. Today I'm joined by author and politics professor Corey Brett Schneider, who is in New York, and journalist and all-round lovely, cuddly person, pundit Emma <laughs> Burnell in London. Say hello, folks. Hi, in a week that has seen the US standing in the world diminishing further because of Trump's performance at the G7, we ask Emma Burnell, are we finally in the Brexit endgame? Boris Johnson likes to position himself as the people's prime minister there to deliver Brexit. But this crowd furious about the Brexit bombshell dropped today. The PM trying to shut down Parliament for five weeks to stop MPs blocking his no-deal Brexit. In a letter to MPs, Mr Johnson said he'd end this parliamentary session in September and start a new one on October the 14th. We are going to have a Queen's speech and we're going to do it on October the 14th and we've got to move ahead now with a new legislative programme. Prime Minister, to do that Queen's speech, you will need to prorogue Parliament for several days. Your critics will say this is an insult to democracy and deny the MPs the time they need to debate and possibly vote on Brexit. No, well, that's, that, that is uh, completely untrue. If you look at what we're doing, we're bringing forward a new legislative programme on crime, on hospitals, and making sure that we have the uh, education funding that we need. And there will be ample time on both sides of that crucial October the 17th summit. Ample time in Parliament for MPs to debate. 
Speaker John Burko with a very different take. This was a constitutional outrage to stop Parliament debating Brexit, an action against democratic process and the rights of MPs. Emma, it is Wednesday. It's the 28th of August. We, uh, the Prime Minister of England, Boris Johnson, has prorogued Parliament. What does that mean? Uh, proroguing basically just means that they shut down the parliamentary session. So Parliament had not been officially prorogued when they broke up at the end of the summer. So it could have come back at any time. What essentially it means is that he's ended a very long parliamentary session, but will not be starting another one until a little later than expected. So there will be less parliamentary time, five days less parliamentary time, which normally five days really neither here nor there. But as there is so little time between now and the 31st of October, when we leave the EU with or without a deal, um, actually parliamentary time is essential, not least to do various things that would be needed in the case of a no-deal Brexit, um, there's there's various pieces of absolute emergency legislation that need to get passed. Um, but also for those people who want to ensure that Brexit is not no-deal, um, they would want to have that parliamentary time to assist them in doing so. Considering that this was always an option, though I think initially when Prorogum of Parliament came up in the summer and definitely became a thing during the Tory party leadership, um, people always thought that it was somewhat of an outlandish proposition. But considering it was, was an option, why does this seem to have caught everybody on, on the hop today? Um, it kind of came out of nowhere. It wasn't expected today. It just The thing about something always being an option is it hasn't been used because it's still an option. So I guess when it actually happens, that's when people were kind of like up in arms about it. And yeah, there was a lot of discussion during the um, Tory leadership contest. And a lot of people who at that time were opposing Boris Johnson and said, oh, we'll resign, have um, rather failed to do so today. Although Ruth Davidson, the leader of the Conservatives in Scotland, has resigned. Is it possible to stop it? I mean, is there some sort of procedural move to... Uh, Yeah, there is a case going through, an emergency case going through the Scottish courts to see if they can stop it. Parliamentarians are saying they're going to sit anyway and, um, you know, try to get rid of them. Um, It may well end up being both a massive step and not a big enough step for what Johnson wants to do. Um, But on the other hand, what it might simply... I think the gamble he's taking is that by doing this, he's going to push people into backing whatever deal he brings to the table. Um, And he probably will bring something that's very similar to Theresa May's deal with some tiny tinkering around the edges, which he will go, oh, look at my wonderful new deal. Um, Apart apart from that, could they just vote no confidence? I mean, is that... They could vote no confidence, and that's hard to do if Parliament's not sitting. Right. Um, But it will have to sit. So there will be some parliamentary time before 31st of October during which they could schedule a vote of no confidence. The problem is, is there's a lot of politicking happening around a vote of no confidence. So, for example, the Lib Dems are saying, if we have a vote of no confidence, we would not install a government with Jeremy Corbyn as the leader, even just as a caretaker government. <laughs> Labour are saying, well, hang on a minute, he's the leader of the opposition, of course he gets first go. Uh, at forming a government. Um, so an awful lot of people are playing politics with this moment. So they, And they also keep referring to what might happen in terms of a caretaker government as a government of national unity. What they mean by that is a government that would include Lib Dems, Tories, Labour, maybe one of those change UK, whatever they're called this week, guys. Um, but it would be a Remainer government. The whole point of having this would be people who want to remain. Um, So it can't be described really, realistically, as a government of national unity because we are a divided country and we're divided in two halves. Isn't this somewhat of a masterstroke by Johnson? Because as you said, number one, he skewers um, Remainers by giving them less time to get um, their shit, our shit together, whether it's uh, legislative or legally against uh, no deal. And then he turns up the heat so that if he comes back with any sop of a deal from from the EU, that um, if you're anywhere near a moderate remainer, but you believe that the, the British people have spoken, 
that you feel morally obliged to avert no deal so you're going to vote vote for this this is this is a political masterstroke from johnson it may well be it may well turn out that way um it's so far today that's not yet materialized partly because of his own headbangers so the european research group which is this group of about somewhere between 40 and 70 MPs, depending on who's self-defining as it this, uh, on any given moment, have said that they won't um, back any deal that's just got rid of the backstop. Now, getting rid of the backstop itself is almost completely impossible, um, but getting anything additional than that is, is going to be really, really difficult. It may well be that the talk of no deal has been amped up so heavily that now the headbangers are just not willing to accept anything that's not no deal. And that may well be, I mean, I think we are at the moment, the most likely option is that we leave the EU on the 31st of October with no deal. Obviously, people like myself are campaigning very hard to try and stop that happening. Um, but it, at the moment, the most likely options are either, are first of all, no deal. And second of all, having to revoke at the last minute because we've got no other option. Can you explain, I mean, I, I'm sort of flabbergasted by the whole thing. I had never before, I guess, the last couple of days heard of this process of suspending Parliament. I mean, it, to put it bluntly, it seems to me that this is a suspension of democracy. I always understood the British system as being about the sovereignty of Parliament. And so the idea that you're just sort of pushing that aside so that we can have this and making it worse, this phrase of queen speech that, you know, somehow the monarch, uh, some symbolic monarch takes over for at least a period of time. I mean, to me, this is, you know, reading, I think to many people, like it is a kind of collapse of democracy. Now, I know it's not that and there's explanations, but maybe you could help help talk me down. I mean, when I was reading the news today, I was like, England is no longer a democracy. We have a collapse of Weimar moment and now we the Queen took over with her lackey Boris Johnson. <laughs> no, it's very much the other way round. The Queen has no actual right, I know. say. Yeah, yeah, um, loads of, loads I, guess I was thinking in all seriousness that he is symbolically using that symbol yeah. of the of the Queen, of the monarch, to take executive action where he's a member of parliament. And how how can he well, do that? Be, well, before Emma, before you properly answer, um just couple of things because otherwise I'm going to say naff all in this episode because this is all about you Emma because you're you're <laughs> the person who's uh, at so the cold wrong. face or whatever <laughs> but um, the Queen's speech is the the mechanism whereby every session of Parliament um, basically is opened by in terms of it's the government's um, legislative program this mm. is what they, they set out so and it's called the Queen's speech because Technically speaking, everything that happens in the UK is at the behest of the Queen, technically right. speaking. It's right. the Queen's government, yeah. it's the Queen's Formal. loyal opposi right. opposition, etc., etc. Um, there was some talk this morning, some minor chatter, that because uh, the Prime Minister's asked for a proroguing of Parliament to suspend Parliament, whether it's for three days, three hours, three years, he has to go to the monarch, that... Could the Queen actually say no? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, she can't. No, no. You know, and the, the idea Queen that is... Remainers were wandering around thinking that that's what she could do is just so misunderstanding the Queen's role. The, the Queen is a constitutional monarch. Arguably, you could say she is a ceremonial monarch. Arguably. That the Queen has little or no uh, independent manoeuvre when it comes to anything to do with um, government and the governance of, of the UK. She's, she, technically, yes, she could have said no, but actually precedent, she, you know, you, you'd bring about a republic pretty quickly if the Queen <laughs> turned round yeah, and yeah. actually said to the Prime Minister of the UK, you cannot do this. What the Queen has, there's a certain amount of discretion and and she can talk freely to a prime minister. What that prime minister then decides to do with that advice is entirely up to him or her. But for the Queen actually to turn around and say, no, you cannot suspend Parliament, uh, that would 
be the end of the monarchy in a few yeah. years' time. Yeah, you think but, we've but got a constitutional it, I mean, crisis now, mate? <laughs> yeah, well, but where does I, his authority come from if not... I mean, to me, th- this is a... From uh, the people. Question. Right, exactly. So that's, that's the... As a member as of voice through As voice through Parliament, yes. Right. So the moment that you claim this executive power, this fiction that you're acting on behalf of the Queen in, in suspending the Parliament... To me, you know, it raises the question of where does that power come from? It comes from precedent, maybe, or from acceptance, but it, it undermines the whole idea that, that the, the prime minister is a member of parliament and the par- parliament is sovereign. So I guess I think if it really is usurping that power of parliament, why should she not come in and say, no, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to restore parliament to its rightful central place. She just can't do it. She, the, she, the queen acts on... The wishes of her prime minister. That is just simply how it is. And this was just literally just a rubber stamp. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and in terms of the proroguing thing, like I'm really cross and upset and I think it's terrible, but it is not quite the affront to democracy that you're thinking it is. This mm-hmm. is no different from, say, a lame duck session of Congress. Mm-hmm. That's basically where we're at. What he's done is, you know, is have the speaker not call bills. And then you close the parliament, everyone goes off on holiday, and then you go, oh, look, but while you were gone, let's do this thing for 20 mm. days. Uh, mm. you know, it, it, that, that it's is a all. kind of procedural yeah. sort of mechanism. Yeah. Um, and, 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 yeah. and it's funny that I hadn't heard this expression before prorogue in parliament before Dominic Raab uh, kind of raised it. He, and he ran to be one of the leaders of the Tory party, so hence he could have been actually been the prime minister. I hadn't heard of this. But it does happen. I, di- I didn't realise that John Major had done this back in 1992, for, for, uh, just before an election. But I suppose it's because... But Parliament is of, always prorogued before an election. Parliament's prorogued several what, times a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Emma, please explain to us why the Speaker, John Burko, is saying this is a constitutional right. outrage if this is uh, a common or garden occurrence. Because what has happened is, he's, is where he should have prorogued at the end of the summer, um, and everyone said, you can't prorogue Parliament, we're in crisis mode, and so they didn't do that. By proroguing at the end of the summer, rather than the beginning of the summer when Parliament went into recess, he's then, as I say, taken a large chunk of time away from the MPs who have every right and should be able to debate Brexit, the biggest crisis hitting our country, well, probably, certainly since the Second World War. Um, so I think the reason that it is constitutionally worse than a normal proroguing of Parliament is that it's been timed to avoid democracy. Right. It is bad, but where you're, I think, getting two concepts mixed up is this particular way that this one has been done and in general proroguing parliament, which is really just a procedural thing. What, one, I guess, slight pushback about the analogy with the American case, I mean, I, I think it is more complicated. The you know, lame duck session, the meeting, all of these things are timed based on constitutional term limits, right? And, and based on the setup in the document. I, of course, I am bringing it back to the Constitution, <laughs> as I, I promised to do. And so that, you know... That's, in, in a sense, the Constitution is sovereign or sovereign in the name of the people through the written document. So that lame duck session of Congress has no problem. It also is prevented from happening in the way that we're talking about, timed for a political outcome. So I guess I feel like, you know, it looks very similar to a lame duck session. But when you go down to the roots of it, a lame duck session, there's a clear answer. Why? It's because the Constitution says so, basically. And what about this? I don't know where the power to basically maneuver the procedure to unseat, basically, Parliament in order to get... It's not, by the way, just a desired outcome of one policy. It's the most important policy question in, in you know, decades. Uh, and, and so I guess I, I, I really feel like, wow, this is... I, I took the words of the speaker, who I understand never, not commonly speaks out this, this strongly, to, to be... He's a very it activist really speaker. It really is a constitutional crisis mm. there. Uh, Aberko is a very activist speaker. Mm, okay. um, so he does speak out more than others might do. But yeah, we are in a moment of absolute constitutional crisis. Mm. I'm not denying that at all. Nor am I saying that what has happened today isn't dreadful and an affront to democracy. What I'm trying to do is unpick that from the general concept of proroguing parliament, right. which really isn't a big deal. 
Right. So yeah, that's so kind, kind of, of difference in yeah. degree. Yeah. I mean, one, you know, to push on the radical side, which, you know, I'm a d interested in fundamental ideas of democracy, so this problem grabbed me. But the, I guess I do think in some instances, in extreme instances, where a, a, a procedural move has been used to sort of unhinge the foundation of democracy itself in, in parliamentary sovereignty in this instance, that you sometimes have these moments where it's like, look, we're just beyond the, the, because it is a constitutional crisis, we're beyond the pale of normal procedure, normal precedent, and that it opens up extraordinary measures. I, I got to say like, that when I heard about the idea of the queen intervening, not by claiming power herself, but by devolving it to, to parliament, I thought, I don't know, I, I, I'm not convinced still that it's a bad idea. <laughs> Uh, it's a terrible say, idea, well, and I'll tell monarchy, you why. I think, it's a, okay, that's fine. <laughs> it's a terrible idea, and I'll tell you why it's a terrible idea. Because the Queen is very old, and we've got a very activist heir to the throne coming up, and I don't want him, I don't want us to set a constitutional precedent mm. where he could do anything like Charles. that. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I get so angry with lefties who go on about sort of, oh, get the Queen to do X, Y, or Z. No, think about what precedent you're setting. I mean, okay, I'm in the minority in this country in that I'm a Republican. Small R, not, not your kind. Um, but, <laughs> well, that is my kind. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I know what you mean. <laughs> but even if I weren't, I would still argue that you should not set that kind of precedent even in this kind of crisis. Yeah, the, uh, for kind of pragmatic and, and political reasons. That's a good yeah. argument. I mean, in, I remember in Egypt when, you know, there was a crisis there about whether or not the Democratic Party ruling but flirting with Islamic rule, whether or not there would be a justification of a coup and whether or not you could on democratic grounds say, look, the Democratic Party is acting undemocratically and so we need military intervention. Now, there's an interesting theoretical argument along the lines that we're talking about, but the answer there now, in retrospect, is clearly the one that you gave, which is you don't want to empower the military because they never really go away. Yeah. And so maybe that's true of the monarchy. I mean, just look at Saddam. Because they never go away. <laughs> All right. Before we uh, talk any more about specifically constitutional crisis, um, Emma, will this fire up? the fundamentally the remain parties or at least the labor party to unite with the with the other remain parties that's to, that's happened so so tell us what's actually happened today yesterday there was the, the church the, the, house the, declaration there was that but so tell us what happened yesterday so, and uh, tell us what's happening today so basically, all of the major politicians from all of the Remain supporting parties came together and signed a pledge to do everything within parliamentary powers up to and including um, a no-confidence vote to stop a no-deal Brexit. And that may well be what triggered today's action, because obviously once that happened, then that was what put the scuffers up Boris Johnson. Mm. Um, now before there was a lot of politicking going on around this a lot of sort of small p party politics um isn't the time for that over though now well i we think are that at that's, the end game aren't we i think that is what has happened in the last couple of days is that people are have gone you know what this is now genuinely a crisis we've got to put our differences aside and come together to support one thing um, and we shall see what that one thing turns out to be. But I do think that today has united the Remain tribes better than they were two days ago. Hmm. I saw Dominic Grieve, uh, the ex-Attorney General, who's a Tory uh, member of Parliament, uh, for people that don't know, who's very much a Remainer, still kind of hedging and saying no, I don't want to have a vote of no confidence against this government. He's always, uh, I always thought that he always said, yeah, he would do it. But today, he didn't unequivocally say that. Uh, Dominic Grieve is a lawyer, a former QC. He almost never unequivocally says anything. <laughs> he's, um, I think he's keeping his cards close to his chest because he knows that's where he can have the most influence. Um, but I think... Ruth Davidson resigned about an hour ago, and mm -hmm. I think that's going to cause a lot of um, 
a lot of Remain supporting Tories to think long and hard about what they should be doing. Oh, for, for people that don't know, tell us who Ruth Davidson is. Ruth Davidson is the leader of the Conservative Party in Scotland. So in Scotland and in Wales, we have devolved, a devolved Parliament, devolved Assembly. Technically, we also have one in Northern Ireland, but it's not sitting and hasn't done for about 18 months. Um, and Ruth Davidson is the leader of the opposition in Scotland. In, in Scotland, the Tories are in opposition within their Parliament to the Scottish National Party. And she's been an incredibly popular Tory, hasn't she? She's a very popular Tory. She's a very unusual Tory. She's an out um, gay woman. Um, she is, I think, a kickboxer. I'm making that up. I swear I'm not making that up, but maybe I'm making that up. Um, and she's she's very personable. She's good on the media, um, and she is the kind of modern Tory that we thought they were turning into 10 years ago, but instead they've reverted to type. <laughs> Isn't it a kind of do or die moment for Remainers in that if you don't, I guess I don't see based on this conversation a way forward um, if there isn't a vote of no confidence. I mean, if there isn't, doesn't he win and that's it? <laughs> uh, yeah. Brexit? Uh, right. I think there has to be a vote of no confidence. So this is it. It's like um, one, you know, you, you really mean... I mean, the, what, they're, what they're kind of talking about is having pushing through some emergency legislation that says we cannot leave without a deal, and if there is no deal, then we have to have an extension. Uh, and that extension would then, <laughs> because of what the EU have said to us, any extension would have to have a, a democratic moment, is the phrase that they use. So that either means a second referendum or a general election. And this has to happen, obviously, before the suspension of Parliament, right? Uh, Well, there'll be a bit of Parliament next Next week. week. And then they'll suspend, because they always do for the party conference season, um, but he's suspending it early for that, basically. Uh, And then they'll come back in mid-October for two weeks before the 31st. So they could slip that in then. That would be their moment. Yeah. And it will probably be the post-party conference moment, but if something big happens and we go for an election, they'll probably cancel the party conferences. Couldn't Johnson figure out, you know, it seems like that's what he's doing. He's trying to shrink the time so that no-deal Brexit happens. And if he thinks that there's a possibility that that two weeks will will basically torpedo his plans, he could uh, do that. Couldn't he suspend again or no? Uh, no, I don't think so, because I think the writ that he's laid down at, says that there are these days that have to happen. And there, there is, like, these six pieces of legislation that absolutely have to happen if we're going to have a no-deal Brexit. Any of the government's no-deal Brexit planning yeah. depends on that legislation. So he can't through. get his things through. So I, I think some people feel that he might... That one, one of the things he's trying to do is force a vote of no confidence so that they can, he can then have an election. Because of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, it's not that easy to have an election now. Um, and then he runs the election as a um, the people versus parliament election and tries to get a much bigger majority in parliament to do what he wants to on Brexit. Mm. It's hard not to see this as um, not quite checkmate for Remainers, but pretty much. Like, he kind of has strong options whichever way you look at this um it can it can claim to be trying to uphold the will of the 52 percent number one that's in a very emotional argument which has some you know political uh, validity um he's able to say well there still is time for you to debate on this but we've done a whole load of talking <laughs> um he has the the option anyhow uh, Remainers get their acts together in Parliament to say, well, okay, uh, I'm going to call an election. Even if he gets forced, which is, I think, as you said, Emma, is a diminishing possibility, even if he gets forced into some kind of extension, um, he can then call an election. And the Tories, because he has been energetic since he's been Prime Minister, there, you know, you, you have to give him that. Um, you do feel taking the politics. Can, to, to one, the remain politics to one side, um, that compared to Theresa May's administration, here is somebody who feels energetic, 
feels new. He's running around the country, ruffling his hair. You know, he stood next to Trump looking like a fucking buffoon, trying to look deliberately disheveled. But you know what? Things do feel different. Unless Remainers in Parliament can coalesce very quickly around this le- legislative stop and be able to hit that button to say vote no confidence and to have 20 to 30 Tory MPs uh, go with it. Bear in mind there's going to be some Labour MPs that won't. I just think this is a political masterstroke. The timing, um, the various mechanisms that Johnson has, and the very fact that he has this, and I hate to use the word populist, but has this populist economic agenda in a way that Trump promised to when Trump was, Trump was running... But he's, 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 I'm going to throw more money at teachers. I'm going to throw more money at the NHS. Is hitting all of those, um, you know, soft, cuddly points that people who aren't that attuned to the wider ramifications of a right-wing Tory economic agenda will say, "Well, this is good. This is good." Um, yeah, I mean, he's made, he's definitely in campaigning mode. That there's no denying that. Um, he's been in campaigning mode since he got in. Um, he is running an election strategy. Um, he clearly wants to have an election, and he clearly wants to be forced, cornered into having elections, so that he can do the um, it's you versus Parliament mm. argument. The only problem with that is that that's what Theresa May tried to do, and it didn't go so well for her. Um, and Remainers have only got angrier, and I think Leavers have probably also got angrier. He can call an election himself, right? He no. can be forced into it. Oh, he can't? No. Why? He would have to get Parliament to vote to call an election because um, of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. I see. So we're only supposed to have an election every five years. Um, unless there's a no-confidence vote. Unless there's a no-confidence vote or you, mm. or an election is voted on by, I, see. I think it's two-thirds of the Yeah, House? I was trying to remember. I think it's two-thirds as well. Um, I mean, it does seem like that's flawed legislation. Now oh, God, it's terrible it's legislation. Parliament. Honestly, David Cameron <laughs> is so responsible for almost everything that's wrong at the moment. And it was... he. David Cameron was all tactics and no strategy. So two things that he did. One, call a referendum to try and shut up his right wing. And B, vote through the fixed-term Parliament Act to try to shut up the Lib Dems. And honestly, the, the bloody mess that those two things have caused, absolute disgrace. Um, so, yeah. The, the, it is a weird kind of hybrid um, of, of a kind of constitutional and a, and a purely democratic sovereignty and parliament kind of system yeah. because it doesn't allow the obvious thing, which is if the thing's not functioning, that you have to re, redo it. And yeah. It, it, it legislates dysfunction in a way that yeah. I, I find bizarre. It's absolutely bonkers, honestly. It's yeah. completely bonkers. Um, in terms of votes in Parliament, I think, once again, you're conflating two different things there. I There are Leave-supporting Labour MPs who won't vote for... Are the you voting. having a go at me now? I yeah. am. Okay, right. So just checking. Just checking. So I thought, oh, I am literally writing the hand of feet, But I'm glad that our American guest is not being berated, but it's me. Great. Um, so basically, there are two different types of vote that we're talking about here. One of which is passing legislation to stop no deal. There are a handful of Labour MPs who won't vote for that, so you have to get the equivalent number of Tories to do so. Mm. And that would be the Labour Leave people who genuinely believe we should Brexit, and the people who represent Leavey constituencies who are just really nervous about the democracy aspect of overturning any referendum, and they now believe that having no stopping no-deal Brexit is also overturning the referendum. Um, so people like... Um, who am I thinking of? Uh, Caroline Flint, for example. Yeah. Um, so you have to get enough Tories to vote for that in order to, to pass it. There will be no Labour MPs who will not vote for a no-confidence vote in Boris Johnson because they'd lose their seats. Um, their, their, their constituencies would deselect them immediately. Kate Howey. Well, Kate Howey's standing down. Um, so she might vote... Um, she might vote for a vote no confidence, but I suspect that Kate Hoey um, 
will be told by Boris Johnson to vote for it if he wants an election, and I think he does. Is there a, uh, you know, I'm an optimistic American type. I mean, is there a scenario where uh, the election is called, and I understand Johnson's strategy will be to run against Parliament, to say respect the democratic outcome of the referendum, but I would think certainly there are a lot of arguments on Remain's side, like this is a disaster for you and your children. It's going to be terrible for the British economy. And how about that? The referendum itself was not a purely democratic yeah, but Corey, act. Corey, Corey, you're coming at this with cold, hard rationale. <laughs> and that's not how people vote. <laughs> baked in from being um, a political yes. liberal. That, that is, is not correct. the way that this, is, this has been sold. And, 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 and what goes to underline this whole debate is that people have their gut belief, which cannot be swayed by facts. And, and quite simply, there is the fear of the other. That's an element of this immigration. Right. There is the, the fear or the worry of being controlled by a, a supernatural, uh, supernational body. There's a whole load of things of which, quite simply, people just, some people, don't get me wrong, there are, there are some levers who will quite calmly say, yes, we'll take an economic hit if we leave the European Union, but there will be a longer economic benefit. There are, there are, there are some of those people. There are some, there are some levers that will say that the country needs immigration. We just don't want it from Europe. They're very few and far between, but primarily fueling that re re remain a vote is nostalgia that somehow we can go back to where we were in the 1950s. It's very much make America great again. It's the same yeah. types of things with the people are harking back to a halcyon period and saying, well, when Britain had an empire, we weren't part of the EU. We can kind of do that again. So you, you cannot then turn around to somebody who believes that and say, you do know that every economic forecast says we're going to lose between um, 2% and maybe up to 10% of our GDP in the, ne in the next 10 years. Then and of course, you just get told that's Project Fear. Exactly. It doesn't matter that Which is even your... the government's own forecast. Say okay. that. I am a, li matter. a liberal yeah. Democrat and a believer, not in the sense of your party, but in the small L, liberal, LD. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the idea of democracy, though, and I don't think this is true of referenda, I have to say, that the referenda process does bring out the kind of fear, the populism, the things that we're talking about. But a parliamentary election isn't supposed to function that way, and I don't think has to function that way. You have well, individual I, I, representatives going out, talking to people, responding to fake news, lies, and, and so, I mean, I, I don't know. I've got to believe that the process can function as it should. Well, I, again, um, that's what one of the big problems w with all of this, is that fundamentally we're a parliamentary democracy, but for, what, five or six times in the last 40 years, we've had referenda, and they've ended up screwing things up, basically. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, and, and because we had a referenda to ratify going into the EU and it was a rubber stamp, we kind of said, well, that was kind of all right. So we had another one and another one. And it's ended up where these two fundamental clashes of governance have come right. up against each other. And you're completely right. What referendum does do, and you see it completely over here in California with the various propositions, right. prop this and prop that, <clears throat> that then the governor uh, then has to do backflips to try and accommodate the, the popular will which had been proposed through a proposition. And they don't allow for nuance. They don't allow for changing of economic and political circumstances after that proposition has, has been voted on. And, and that is the reason why we have elected uh, officials to go and say, yes, this is kind of what I believe in. Uh, but these, these are people who can sit down and ruminate and, uh, and, and to think about policy. And what we have here is an extreme right-wing position that we need to break economic ties, uh, running up against the economic reality. And 
And it's all been put in place, dare I say, by David Cameron to soothe over internal Tory party divisions. And it's ripping the country yeah. to pieces. The this one is, enthusiastic addendum I guess I'd put on there is that the idea of popular will, you can't see this, but I'm doing my air quotes, the, the, uh, you know, is not what the referenda is. The referenda is a catering to the worst instincts of a polity. To me, the reflection that comes with a real representative debate among a parliamentary election, that's truer to the reflected idea of the will of the people. So I think, you know, we've got to not cede to the referenda the idea that somehow this is the pure, pure view of the people. It's some warped, you know, manipulated idea of, of democratic I mean, there, there are two problems with that as an argument. First of all, if you tell people they're being manipulated, they won't believe you and <laughs> right. they'll get very cross. But that makes my point rather than undermines it. Nobody wants to be told that they're being stupid. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, that would work if we had any respect for MPs, but we don't. Um, mm. They were very little respected before the 2008 crash and, the, and then the MPs financing scandal. And since those, you know, we just, just, there's no respect for parliamentary democracy at all. Mm -hmm. um, really from both sides. And to be fair, and to be fair to us Brits, um, throughout the Western world, there's been a collapse of respect for elected politicians. It's the reason why we're having these wild swings from, from left to right, whether it's in Italy or, um, you know, you, you name a country and uh, respect for elected officials is kind of gone southwards. That's part of the problem of the crisis generally of democracy around the world. And it's not by accident, you know, I think that the Russian government and, you know, I, I would have thought that five years ago this is a paranoid conspiracy theory, but now we know it's true, is working to undermine faith in elected officials, faith in democracy, and, you know, this sort of is the result of it, that we turn to this extremely flawed referendum process or, um, you know, even within representative democracy, the, the election of the president was uh, populist-like and, and, and uh, like a plebiscite in the sense of people voting, you know, on, on, on the sort of worst instincts that they have. <coughs> I think just blaming, I mean, obviously Putin is a meddler, Mm. Um, but I think just it's, just it's, that, it's yeah. a comfortable fairy tale that we tell ourselves because we don't want to believe that people are behaving badly off their own volition. Um, I think I think the 2008 crash and the lack of change, systemic change, and the lack of anyone um, actually taking the fall for it mm. is really much, much more to blame. Um, much more to blame. In the UK, that was then exacerbated dramatically by the MPs' expenses scandal. Um, but there are, there was, there's something in every country where the mm. elite ha are seen to just be against people. And I mean, I, the elite I, I, have not helped themselves by basically mm. making that true a lot of the time. I think in the U US case, at least, though, that what the data is showing, you know, I, I thought that during the election, okay, this is a sort of economically disenfranchised group speaking out. But the data is starting to show that the support doesn't correlate just to economics, that it's race-based. And, you know, that Trump was a birther. He said Obama wasn't born here mm -hmm. and ran a campaign of, you know, hatred, basically. And <laughs> I are, hate to say it, but I think that's what people responded to, not, no. not economic anxiety. Yeah, well, no, I think economic anxiety has been used too much. I mean, it's there, but it's not. But it, that's not, it's not necessarily the economic part of the 2008 crash that I'm talking about. It's mm. that nobody took the blame. Mm -hmm. Nobody was put in jail over that. Uh, and so many people suffered. And there was no one. And so they, they wanted to lash out, quite rightly. Mm. That they're lashing out in a, a way that I disagree with is, you know, uh, lamentable. But I can absolutely understand the instinct. But it is like a wild person acting out in the sense that Trump, if anybody is implicated in the, you know, failure of economic elites to look out for the long-term interests of the country, it's him. Absolutely, And in the absolutely. case of Brexit, my God, I mean, this is not a corrective at all, right? No, it's completely. It's disaster. going to make everything 10 million times worse. You, you're completely right that this isn't just to do with economics, that also this is to do with identity. And uh, one of the things, one of the themes that I really believe in is that for people to notice change, societal change, 
Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's, it's what, what you do with that. Um, my parents, when they came in the early 1960s, were part of a demographic and a very visible, obvious change to, to Britain. Very obvious. Here were people of a different skin colour. Some people with different skin colours came with different religions. Um, they cooked different foods. The British high street changed. This British society changed. And we, we can't deny that to notice that change is a very human response. Trump supporters um, say that America is changing. It's less what it used to be. That's a fact. Mm. What, what then do you do, do with that? Do you say, well, the ideals of this country always were that we were supposed to be colorblind? We kind of weren't in 1776 when we had that uh, Declaration of Independence because we said that people who were black were only three-fifths of a human being, right? But still, you know, the country is physically changing, demographically changing. Um, how do we deal with that? Now, the Trump supporters will say that we need to stop change and, and, to, and to reverse that. What people who have voted for Brexit are saying is, some, is something very similar. And, and that's before you take the economic arguments of economic dislocation and the fact that since the early, since the mid-1970s, the post-war boom has not created enough wealth for people at the bottom of the economic strata, and that is period for every, um, sec for every country in the Western world, with the possible exception, really, of Germany. The German economic boom went on longer. When you understand, and I say this all the time, my father, bus driver, retired eight years ago. He owns three houses. A bus driver. He started working, and he came as an immigrant to this country. He is the British dream, if such an expression <laughs> even existed. He came in 1961, worked hard, blue collar, no university education, ended up retiring with my mother, three houses. You cannot be a bus driver in any Western democracy and work your whole life and own three houses. You'll struggle in most to own one. Yeah. <laughs> and that is the fundamental problem. And that has been a malign thing which is eaten away at um, economic and political consensus and we didn't notice it. And when the shock came in 2008, um, we didn't move fast enough to realign economic opportunity. And, and, the, and, the, and the problem is, at the heart of left-of-centre politics, is we say there is nuance, and the questions are complicated, and the solutions are complicated. On the other side, they say the problems are simple, the questions are simple and the problems are simple and people get seduced by that. My worry is, uh, I'll give you the example here, is that the consensus that people want to go back to is the New Deal consensus where uh, you do have a thriving middle class, you have government uh, th throwing money, well not thriving at the time, but you have government trying to aid a middle class to make it thriving, eventually it does thrive, but all at the expense of racial equality. And that was the sort of accepted, many African Americans in the country um, liked Roosevelt because they liked the benefit. But the fact is what they were, if those who were supporting him, uh, what, what was being accepted was a sort of subordination on behalf of a growing middle class. I think that's the consensus Trump supporters want and that what Trump himself wants, that we can bring countries Back to wealth. Some people are going to benefit more. White people will benefit more. Uh, but everybody should accept it because you'll be better off. And that to me is, you know, that's a real worry. That, that's not a, a world that we want to go back to. I think it, it wasn't worth it. I don't know about the British case, but my guess is that there, there was some element of that as well in that, in that, that early period. There's, yeah, there's definitely, I mean, we, there's definitely an element of racial animus as part of the Brexit issue. Um, I don't think it's as pronounced um, as some of the Trumpian stuff um, 
we haven't got anyone in cages at the moment, to the best of my knowledge. Mm. Mm. No, I think that's fair, Emma. And, and as I've said before, <laughs> many, many times on this podcast, my mother both voted to leave. So yeah. it's not pure racism. Yeah. Hence, I, one of the early things I said is to notice that things are changing demographically in and of itself is not a bad thing. Mm. You know, you've got eyes. It's the, then what you, how you then approach that change is where the politics really starts. Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely, absolutely. Right, folks, uh, so just, let's end up on this, Emma. Um, next week, uh, there will be some parliament. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you might have a Barlow Johnson dictatorship next week. <laughs> Probably not. I'm not sure that we've done it already, but... It's one of the key differences between our two countries is that arguably what we have here is always is an elected um, dictatorship here in Mm. in the UK. That if um, a a parliamentary party has um, a workable majority, within reason, they're going to get their legislation through Mm. lock, stock and barrel. Whereas... There aren't those uh, other chambers to to stymie it as right. there is in the United States. So Boris Johnson could, could well say, "Let's have an election so I can become the elected dictator of Britain," and he'll <laughs> be able to ram home whatever he mm. wants to do. But anyway, uh, I'm talking, Emma. It's your time to shine. Uh, <laughs> next week we're going to have some Parliament. Um, what's going to happen? Let me wrap this up. Uh, I think it depends what's going to happen in the various sort of judicial cases and the complaints to the Speaker. Uh, the Speaker will almost certainly have, allow an emergency debate on this, so that that will be one of the first things that happens. I suspect he's, ra- he's, he's wickedly riled up now, so he will allow anything that will piss off Boris Johnson to be <laughs> debated in the, in, in the chamber. Um, and we shall just see what the numbers are. My concern is that Parliament has said consistently that it doesn't want no deal, but has also consistently failed to do anything about that. Um, and no deal is the default. And that's where mm. we're at. On that note, folks, let's move on to our takeaways of the week, because we need some joy somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Right, joy unabound, folks, because oh, it's um, <laughs> I, I barely slept last night. No. <laughs> uh, Emma, your takeaways are always pretty good, pretty positive, and an eclectic <laughs> bunch. So I'm going to go over to you first. Uh, well, I've just come back from the Edinburgh Festival, which was wonderful, um, and I had a great time. And it was remain central, you can imagine. Uh, very rarely heard a Scottish accent, you know, because <laughs> it was basically the whole of London decamped to Scotland. 
Um, but it was lovely, and it was you know the arts festival alongside a book festival, alongside a politics festival, alongside a television festival, alongside the massive fringe festival that is now much bigger than the thing it was originally fringing. Um, and I saw lots of great comedy and fun shows, including one of my favourites, which is called Wi-Fi Wars. Um, and just had a generally lovely time with lovely people drinking beer in the sunshine in Scotland. And it was really hot in Scotland, and I had not packed for that. <laughs> Wowzer. Um, Corey, over to you. Raise our spirits. Let's hear it for the uh, golden age of television. I mean, seriously, this yeah. is like, if you have Netflix and Amazon Prime, this is, it doesn't get better. And one terrific, I mean, I could do this every week, but the latest binge watch I did was The Loudest Voice, uh, which is on Showtime about uh, Fox News and Roger Ailes and Russell Crowe, whatever you think of him and other things <laughs> is terrific in this as this frightening man. And it tells you how we got to where we are, but yet is entertaining to watch. Um, my takeaway... Was that away. not... I know it's supposed to be non-political. Was that non-political enough? <laughs> well, it's about yeah. TV. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you're kind of muddy in the waters there, but we're going to let that one slide. We're going to back up your initial assertion, sir. We are living in the age of TV. Uh, utterly... There's actually too much good TV. Back, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, there was a consensus as to what the intelligent uh, offerings that the, uh, the small box could give us were, and you could watch them. People would say, The Sopranos, or Six Feet Under, and there were maybe five, there were maybe three or four, and you watched them. It's impossible now yeah, to watch yeah. all the good TV that there actually is. You have to be devoted. <laughs> Well, you need to not have a job to be able to watch all the good TV that there is. Um, and this is an age which is economically unsustainable. And with the launch of uh, Disney Plus, it just the imminent launch of Disney Plus is just going to make this even worse for somebody like me who loves superheroes, which is where I'm going with my take of the week. Um, since the age of four, I've been in love with the idea of people having secret identities and doing good. And I suppose, and I've never thought about it until I said it like that, that that goes somewhat to inform my politics. Not that you need to be secret to do good, but just doing good. I've never been able, I've never understood why a do-gooder is a, a slur, is a pejorative term. I want to do good, I don't want to do bad. Call me a do-gooder all you want. Um, and I grew up in the tradition of Marvel Comics. So I slightly struggled watching the first episode of The Boys, the Amazon Prime superhero series. Number one, it's dark. Number two, it's fundamentally a riff on the Justice League. So it's the DC heroes. And so they have a hero called Homelander, who's fundamentally a Superman. Now, they are all corrupt, these, these superheroes. They're controlled by a corporation. Some of them are drug takers. They're abusing their position. Uh, they're abusing their powers by having sex with people. And it's fantastic. <laughs> right. I struggled through the first episode. I don't know if this is, this is for me. And some of the conceits within it, I don't kind of quite buy. But... In terms of an antidote to the slightly saccharine, quippy Disney world of superhero, which I fundamentally love, this is great. So if you see yourself as a little bit jaded by that, but also intellectually a little bit on your game, go watch The Boys, because it's a great critique on if superheroes really existed in the world that we know it, what would they be like? utterly brilliant so the boys on netflix go go watch that not too many episodes it's about eight and they're about an hour long so um you know a good weekend if you don't have small kids you can get you get the, you can get the boys done so Corey brett schneider yeah. um i'm surprised that you haven't segued from that into talking about the american constitution <laughs> and 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 the new book that you're writing sir but, yeah. but now this is your time to tell us what exactly you are up to at the moment 
and to do that self-same segue. Uh, I'm trying to think about a follow-up to uh, The Oath in the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, which comes out in the UK uh, next week, I think. Um, so check it out. It's everything you need to know about the Constitution if you want to be president. And then uh, <laughs> we're not allowed. follow up. Sorry? But we're not allowed. That's in the Constitution. I know that. You're, you cannot be president. That's true. <laughs> so it's everything also that you need to know about the Constitution if you want to vote for a president, which one day you might be able to do if you come here, and at minimum to evaluate a president. Uh, so, uh, and uh, mostly it's a kind of way of, originally it was a book about Donald Trump called Trump versus the Constitution, but the thought was the problem is bigger than the moment that we're in now, it could happen again, and we need a bigger frame to understand what, what's happening here. And so the next one will also take a bigger frame by looking back in history at past constitutional crises and the way that we've uh, been where we are right now, uh, crises caused by presidents. Um, Emma, you're going to have to um, introduce us to your mugging. Oh, there isn't she adorable? Folks, Look um, how gorgeous you, you, she is. You, 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 <laughs> listeners won't know, but actually when we record uh, Mid-Atlantic, we are actually on video cam and this rather handsome black and white cat has just strode behind Emma and she's giving it a proper uh, stroke right now. So who are you stroking? This is my baby Smudgy or Smudge and she is my absolute obsession. I love her to bits. <laughs> and then tell uh, us Because I am that 40 year old crazy cat lady person. <laughs> if you have only one cat I don't think you can call yourself a crazy cat lady. That's if it's three fair. plus, then all of a sudden that's peculiar. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, she's 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 the work of three cats, bless her. <laughs> um, I am, as usual, just writing and working and being too hot, far too hot in London. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at everbenow underscore. And Corey, you didn't give your social media handle uh, at Brett Schneider uh, C. Uh, you could also read my stuff at Corey. Bretschneider.com, including links to the book and uh, articles that I've written, including one on birthright citizenship for the Guardian that maybe we'll talk about in a future future episode. I I forgot to ask you this, but I remember some months ago, I was minding my own business, I was watching uh, Morning Joe, and I saw you on there, Um, which which is a more intellectually taxing... Uh, a bit of media to be on. Mid-Atlantic or Morning Joe with uh, Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. I'm going to go for no comment on that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the show, to me, you know, given how wide their audience are, is, that they are devoted to talking about constitutional issues. They're devoted to really ripping into this president when he does stuff that's both not just illegal but morally wrong. And so, yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan of that show and uh, happy to be be on it. I'm sometimes on Morning Joe First Look, which is even earlier, oh, at, wow. at like 6.30 a.m. if you really want to wake up. No, 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 no. Uh, Corey, I love you dearly, intellectually. I hold you, you, I hold you in highest esteem. That's, that's a stretch too far for me. I've got to get some sleeping. I've got to get some sleeping. I must admit, I do love a bit of joke, but I'm a big Willie fan. I'm a big uh, Oh, did Willie you see Dice the one fan. where we he interviewed... He, when the book came out, this is a great story and listeners can watch it because it's all online mm-hmm. uh, when it came out um, he, he came up it was in the studio he comes up and he says uh, hi professor Brett Schneider I'm Willie Geis I'm gonna interview you today and I said Willie we know each other <laughs> and he said uh, what and I said we went to high school together I was the president of the student body when you were a sophomore and we did student government together and he looked at me and you could see he realized he's like it's you're that. <laughs> wow. And uh, here's it. I'll give you his opening and you can watch the rest. You can Google it uh, online. He said, um, today we have Corey Brettschneider, the author of The Oath in the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. And he gave a preview of the book. And then he goes, my first question to you, Corey, is when you were the president of the student body at Ridgewood High School, you were a defender of the imperial presidency, a strong presidency. (laughs) This book is all about limits on the presidency. What changed? (laughs) (laughs) So check it out. And uh, I thought it was especially impressive because that was all improv. (laughs) 
Well, as, as I said before, I love a bit of Willy. Big <laughs> Willy fan. Big Willy fan me. And That's going to go down very differently on the other side of the Atlantic. Well, that, that, that's <laughs> the reason why I keep repeating it. Um, I got it. You, 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 please, folks, uh, what we really need to push our agenda forward is for you to comment on things that we've said on this week's show. You can do that by going on to midatlanticshow.com and clicking on that right tab. On the right tab, it's the speak pipe tab. It allows you to record up to two minutes of speech and then we'll record it in uh, the next show as somewhat of a rebuttal or of a confirmation that you agree or disagree with anything that we've said. We are going to start changing the show up. We're going to have a, a wider panel uh, of pundits. Though I don't know how you can beat these pair. Uh, they're, they're pretty good. <laughs> Though Corey's always pushing his bloody book. Uh, big changes are afoot. And actually, as, as a slight hint, we are going to be uh, joined by Mike Duncan of the History of Rome podcast and Revolutions podcast who will be one of our occasional pundits soon so get on to midatlanticshow.com hit that red tab and leave your thoughts and comments you can also email me where I'm royfield at gmail.com and you can tell me to F off or you can say oh, dude you, you, you know you said some things which were you know I, I agree with or you can have a go back Corey or, or agree with everything that says that's royfield at gmail.com we are Mid-Atlantic Show. Um, we don't ask for money, but what we do ask is that um, you go on to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, write us a review. If you think we're shit, say that we're shit. If you think we're, we're ace, say we're ace, but go and do it. Participate and go and tell a friend to listen if you think that it's worthwhile to do. Take care. We'll see you all again soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Right, there we go. We'll hit stop. Great. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.